Welcome back to There Will Be Movies Volume 2. This is episode 29, in which we'll be covering 2011's Drive, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, I am joined on this fine Sunday morning by my hopefully driver-gloved and jacketed pal, Matt Waters. Yeah, people who own drive jackets are exceptionally lame. If you have ever dressed as the driver, I'm sorry, but you are lame. Um, what, if you've, what if you've driven home from the cinema forlornly after going to see it alone, listening to the Drive soundtrack? Look, the soundtrack is great. That is not up for debate, right? Like, we are not litigating the, these kinds of things. Um, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's a vibe, but that's all it is to me. Like, I, it, it's stylish and nothing else is my... I, like, I, had, I struggle to feel anything about it. I wouldn't even say I hate it. I just... I, I, four and a half stars seems very high, Benjamin. <laughs> I mean, I put this on my list for a reason, and also 2011 is, is slim pickings for me, because, mm. like, I never saw Tree of Life at the time, and, like, the movies that I really passionately, like, Drive ended up being my favourite movie of 2011, um, the movies that I cared about that year are, like, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Shane, Attack the Block, Tintin, like, all you solid any of these. <laughs> All solid movies, none of which I was like, I want to talk about this movie. Whereas Drive, I'm like, it's this um, kind of... Music video disguised as a European art film. Yes, but like you can put as many interpretations onto it as you you like, in my view. Um, I, I don't know, I think there are things to discuss, even if the entire movie is based around the idea that like Ryan Gosling says a minimal amount of words over the course of this movie. Yes. Yes, he does. Um, yeah, but this is, I, <laughs> I think I think I, I want to touch on this before we get to the movie. So obviously this is, uh, as I said, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, screenplay by Hossein Amini, uh, based on a novel drive by James Salis, except I think like they completely ripped up the entire concept of it. Like Nicholas Winding Refn comes onto this movie on recommendation of Ryan Gosling, just because Ryan Gosling wants to work with Refn. And Refn's just like, I just like the idea of this guy being like a split personality getaway driver, a stunt driver kind of thing. Mm. And the entire structure of the novel is just gone and it becomes far more linear. I think there is like one nested flashback to kind of like make it slightly non-linear. Yeah, I haven't read the book, but from what I understand, it is incredibly non-linear. It is a lot of flashbacks and sort of, yeah, jumping around. Uh, And I... I think Hussein Amini was like shocked that it was something Hollywood would option because it's short and poetic and whatnot and, and well, not, I mean, not yeah, very he, plotty. Because <laughs> the original plan of this is like Mark Platt buys the rights to it like after reading a review, which is mm. oh, God, <laughs> just just weird to think like reading a review and publishers weekly go like that book, I want that one. That's how it is um, now. Comic yeah. sold. <laughs> but yeah, the original plan for this was it was gonna be like a sixty million dollar action movie starring Hugh Jackman directed by Neil Marshall and then it slowly morphs into this Ryan Gosling at the peak or like just as he's cresting into not wanting to be a film star or like (laughs) accepting that he's a film star who doesn't want to be a film star who then picks Nicholas Winding Refn who at this point is best known for his kind of like Euro films with like Pusher he's done Bronson a couple years before this which is obviously what makes Tom Hardy into a star or into a, like a viable leading man, mm. and then this this movie comes out with Gosling doing the same year, Crazy Stupid Love, and The Ides of March, both of which are more traditional leading actor roles, mm. more than he's done in kind of the half decade since The Notebook came out. Yes. And yeah, I feel like this is the kind of defining 
role from that year for him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This like, was, like, like, for whatever I want to say about it, like, this was a huge word-of-mouth, culty-type film. And, yeah, the soundtrack doesn't hurt that because that was a huge selling soundtrack. And, and you know, to this day, Nightcall gets heavy play all over the place. So. Yeah, I feel like I feel like this... So, like, not only do you have Ryan Gosling finally finding his, like, on-screen partner in Emma Stone, Crazy Stupid Love... Mm. Is as the other facet of kind of that 2011 Ryan Gosling story, but you also have. I know this feels like it weaponizes his movie star persona far better than anything else. Like I feel like a lot of his roles after this are kind of this quiet, contemplative kind of guy. Like it's similar to what he does as Neil Armstrong in First Man, like six years later. But not similar to what he does in The Nice Guys, where but I was not... like, oh, I think I really like Ryan Gosling now. I haven't seen Only God Forgives or The Neon Demon, his other two uh, works in this decade. Like, I, have you seen either of them? I've seen, like, the first half hour of Only God Forgives and I turned it off. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. I think like I think it's part of the thing is, this movie feels like... Like, I, I like Bronson. I've not seen a lot of his... I've not seen Pusher, I've not seen Valhalla Rising. I've not seen a lot of his kind of, like, Danish mm. films. Drive feels like it's kind of this perfect concoction where it kind of like distills his things into like a mainstream sensibility and then after this you get Only God Forgives which is just this horrifically violent treatise on violence but it's not particularly interesting but it does have its fans and then Neon Demon is a similar like like the the, the problems with um, Carrie Mulgan's character in this writ large oh good <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like this this to me I, I wouldn't contemplate having his other two movies mostly because I haven't seen them but I think, and it, I do think him not having written this movie kind of pulls some of his sensibilities away from the kind of structure of the plot. Like, I feel like Refn is not a guy who's interested in what this movie's about, and he's just far more interested in, like, making it... What cool. is this movie about, Ben? Um, not much. <laughs> yes! Like, so I think it's... Like, very important to say that this movie is obviously heavily indebted to the driver of the 1978 film by Walter Hill mm. in, like, the idea of, like, nameless character driving around, being the best at what he is, uh, protecting kind of a young young woman from, from like, the, the, the bad things that he's kind of involved in. You can it, see why they took a look at Wolverine <laughs> to, to do this, right? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, and also, like, you can tell this is kind of an archetypal Hollywood story because... Six years later, you get Baby Driver. <laughs> yeah, which I much prefer to drive. I, I, but... I'm sure, but it's funny how you have like the driver in 1978, and then I think both Refn and Wright are kind of quite heavily indebted to that movie, and you have literally the kind of same interpretation of getaway driver whose emotional outlet is through pop music, mm. and you get these two like wildly different movies. And I think, and also two weirdly like stacked movies in terms of their supporting casts where I think both of them are kind of pulling from TV shows. Both of them feature a Mad Men alum. Yeah. Feature is generous, but yeah. <laughs> hey. Contain. Great for her eight-minute stretch of this movie. Yes, where she was lucky enough to beat out porn stars, which is what Nicholas Rending Ruffin was looking at before his wife said, oh, she's pretty, cast her. So, so what's your story behind this movie? Like, did you see this in cinema, or was it no, one that you picked up on Blu-ray? No, just everyone raved about it, and I don't know if I rented it at some stage or if it was like 
on Sky Movies when I was in a house that had Sky Movies, but yeah, at some point I checked it out and I was like, oh, well, that's a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> See, yeah. I, can't even, I can't even disagree with that interpretation <laughs> of the movie because it is just this bog-standard, heist-goes-wrong, revenge-thriller-action type thing. Yeah. And if the vibe doesn't work for you enough to kind of carry you across... I, I like the vibe, but I, I, it's hard for a vibe alone to carry something for me personally. If there was just like a little bit more going on there, I'd, I'd have a easier time getting on board with this four stars plus notion. But for me, this I, I just I don't feel anything about it. Um, I, don't, I don't hate it. Like it's not something where I'm like, ugh. But I just I I'm I can't imagine feeling passionately about it beyond being like oh what a cool soundtrack and look at this cool driving scene at the beginning like um, <laughs> I, I will admit that i have not seen a lot of the kind of the heralded great movies of 2011 like <laughs> margaret is still something that i desperately need to watch from this year mm. um but for whatever reason like 2011 feels like a slightly off year for cinema yeah and also, like, some stuff that we might pick is taken out by the whole no-repeat directors thing. Like, yes. I would imagine you would want Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Um, yes. Yeah. I, we're very conspicuously also not covering Cabin in the Woods, which is a movie that I stan. Maybe a hint for <laughs> something coming up later in this miniseries. It's all right. Everyone can blame me. <laughs> they always do. Yeah. It, it's fine. Like, I get it. I feel it's something to have a conversation about. We... <laughs> You, you passed up the opportunity to put something else on the list that we could have had a real conversation about that I don't like. But, and you chose this. So, when Mad Max doesn't make the list, everyone remember, Ben chose Drive. The two the two most contentious movies that, have made, that were like hovering around the list are the two movies based around cars. Yeah, and I actually have a similar feeling about it, where I just feel nothing about Mad Max, and it, it, I don't see how there's anything more than style to it. And no, there are no characters and no story. <laughs> yes, this, this is, is true. the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same. It's movie. Just this has more neon and like melancholy music. This is like Michael Mann's aesthetic. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right, yeah. Well, I like Michael Mann, so right. So yeah, this movie made on a budget of fifty million dollars. It's tiny, but like, I feel like slightly outsized for who Refn is really at this point, and. Mm the kind of movies that Gosling is doing, uh, ends up grossing $81.4 million at the global box office. I imagine an awful lot of that is coming from America. No, more than half of its money international. Wow. Yeah, I assume because of the director. The film had its highest box office in France. Wow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so, speaking of grosses, 2011 in movies is a story of franchises yeah it's like it's like the death of harry potter and the birth of the mcu proper yeah i mean your top five are harry potter 7 transformers 3 pirates 4 twilight 4 mission impossible 4 um and then you got like kung fu panda 2 fast 5 the hangover 2 the smurfs and cars 2 is your top 10 wow Um, none of none of the marvel movies made it into the top 10 that year no uh thor is 15th like I mean, X Men First speaks, Class is twentieth. <laughs> it speaks to like what the Marvel movies were doing at that point. That like one year later, Avengers is oh yeah, this like world killing behemoth, and yeah. this year is like the death of all those franchises that Hollywood clung to in the early two thousands. 
Mm. If like, you scroll all the way down uh, the, the highest grossing, though, at number 88 is Drive, just ahead of the Ides of March, <laughs> uh, and, and ahead of The Mechanic, The Change-Up, Larry Crown, those are things it beat. It did, however, lose out to Priest, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Abduction, J. Edgar, Spy Kids 4D, Hall Pass, and The Lincoln Lawyer. I saw none of these movies on cinema apart from <laughs> driving Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And I was vilified by my university friends for taking them to go see Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah, I've still never seen that. I'm I, partially intrigued. <laughs> I really dig it. It is very much a slow 19, like, 60s, 70s procedural like crime thing just with like a stacked british cast i am worried it's going to be a little bit jingoey though (laughs) i mean it's it's le carré so (laughs) and in terms of opening weekend in the uk it made just under the equivalent of a million dollars of an eventual 4.7 i definitely struggled to go find it i think i had to drive to like the cinema that was slightly further away Mm. to go see it on my own on like a thursday evening opened in 176 theatres in the UK, so yeah, uh, yeah, opened at number five that weekend. Number one, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in its second week. Crazy Stupid Love, so Gosling did get his money either way. Warrior opens ahead of it. The In Betweeners in its sixth week, and then Drive, uh, but it did beat out Friends with Benefits in its third week. Killer Elite, Jane Eyre, The Smurfs, The Change Up, uh, and at number eleven, a re-release of Jurassic Park, <laughs> which is depressing. <laughs> But hey, you know, okay, I would call that a pretty soft week for movies, uh, or weekend. It's not a huge money film. I think, as you said to me, though, like, for what it is, it's quite an impressive amount of money. And obviously it's very profitable, so not a flop by any stretch, but, you know, not a massive uh, money maker. No, yeah, this feels like, as I said, like, it's the year Gosling decides to come back to, like, those big mainstream movies Mm. after The Notebook, and... For whatever reason, this is the one that kind of sets a template for him. Yeah. Because obviously he works with Reverend again. He starts working with kind of like alternating between more commercial movies and working with more interesting directors. Like he's like not I'm not going to say he's anything like uh, Tom Cruise in terms of what he does. But he seems to have like settled into a groove of like three or four directors that he likes working with. He'll he'll do a big short. He'll do a nice guys. You know, like it's that kind of the big thing, the smaller thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think and then, he does have some like for like what could pass as a pretty airhead Hollywood man. He does have some acting credibility in terms of his choices. So more power to him. Not everyone can claim that. No, I mean I, I think I generally like when Ryan Gosling shows up in a movie. Like I really dig his performances in like First Man and Blade Runner and Nice Guys. I think his character is the weak spot in La La Land. That that is not for this podcast to litigate. No. Uh, but shall we talk about the plot or lack thereof of Drive? Yeah, go for it. Um, this first scene fucks, and I wish this was the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, like this entire thing because this is. Like, again, it opens very similarly to Baby Driver, with yeah. that, like, we are doing a, a heist, we get the setup of the heist with him kind of, like, doing the whole spiel of, like, you have me for five minutes, you don't have me before, you don't have me after, if something happens, I will get you out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't carry a gun. 
<laughs> I just drive. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get this, like, there's just this incredible amount of tension of these mm. two, like, guys who don't look all that, like, all put together. They look kind of shitty. Yeah. In terms of, like, what I mean, he's did. not, like, working for giant organizations. He's He's literally just helping out, like, local dumbass it kind of seems like and like that's how he lays low and that's how he no one knows who he is until what happens in this movie yeah um and yeah so like these two guys get out of the car they break into like a a warehouse or a whatever not important and it's just kind of the entire time it's focused on him and his reactions like he ties his watch to the steering wheel so we can see the five minutes he has the police radio and his like regular radio on so he can listen to when the basketball game is going to let out yeah, and he, I like that he's watching it while he's on the phone to them, laying down the rules. Like it's 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 a persistent thing, um, and and you know and like to, like saying this is a burner, like don't call me on this number or whatever. Yeah, and just and just like paying attention to the cars that are coming around him. Mm-hmm. The first guy comes out, and it's just this kind of like just high tension. Where the fuck is the second guy? Yeah, are they going to get up here before the five minutes? And because the second guy takes so long, someone spots them and calls it into the police. Yeah, and, and it becomes I, like an actual proper getaway. Yeah, and I love the constant, almost heartbeat esque soundtrack here. Like, there's just just this rising tension, and that's the thing. I think it basically it's it's either dope music or it's silence for most of this movie. And I think the silence is actually often quite well employed. Like, I like that he doesn't just go tires screeching, drive as fast as you can. He does a lot of like pulling over and parking and turning the lights off and stuff and like he's smart with it. Um and I, I yeah. like that a lot. Yeah, because this is this is tick of the clock by the chromatics kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. Um just just to say how much of an effect this movie had, Chromatics released my favourite album of two thousand twelve, like the next year. Mm-hmm. I was like fully in this kind of like chromatics are American, but there is this kind of like French mm-hmm. synth pop vibe they like so dark much punk. this movie <laughs> yes yeah yeah but like kind of darker less less yeah. poppy yeah, yeah. um it's it's more like fucking music than high energy music <laughs> okay good distinction okay <laughs> i'm just i'm just trying to trying to no no, no i'm with you i'm with you <laughs> but yeah like this this entire first sequence is great mm. you you cut from this like as he's trying to escape you get the the, the i just love how it's all shot from inside the vehicle yeah and so you see what he sees so that moment when he spots the the cruiser kind of like patrolling the streets and he pulls in behind the lorry mm. and turns the lights off you can see that the police car wouldn't be able to spot them yep. from where they are and it just kind of gives you this sense of perspective that a lot of movies would be like we're going to cut to a wide and show you the tires screeching as he speeds up but this movie is just so much more intent on like here's his face we are calm and cool and we'll show you everything happened in the car and what they can see but we're not going to make it seem like they're going faster than they are or or what's happening outside of the car and I really like them being opposite a police car at an intersection and like you can see the the criminal's like why are you just sitting here and like he's listening and he's like you know you hear the cop be like I think he might be opposite me at a red light, and then and then he goes. That's, that's yeah, a nice touch as well. Once once he thinks he's been spotted, yeah. and then yeah, obviously the end of this is he kind of doesn't quite get away from them. So his like last resort is pulling into the the parking at the stadium mm, at the Staples where... Center just after like li- like he's timing it to the end of the basketball game so that everyone is leaving. And I love this idea that like you know he. He parks the car, 
turns his jacket inside out, puts on a clipper's hat, and just waltzes out the door. Are the, did he tell the criminals he was going to do this? Like, I mean, I'm sure they'll figure it out, but like, jeez, man. Like, if, if, like, if you're yeah. saying the bare minimum of my job is to deliver you somewhere, then fine. But I feel that the small print is, we have to get away. Yeah. I think he's very much at a point where, like, well, this is this has gone wrong. It's on them. Mm. I've got them to somewhere where they can, if they really need to, get out. Yep. But then you see, like, the three police cars show up at the exit to the <laughs> to the parking, and you're just like, Fair. there's no way that two guys who are not dressed for a Clippers game, no. <laughs> with massive bags worth of stuff that they've just stolen, and and balaclavas, are going to be able to get out of. I mean, they have a chance, and I guess that's all you can really be offered when you're doing this kind of thing. But yeah. And, yeah. and then to kind of end the sequence, you get the credits, which is mm. all moody, with Nightcall in the background, which... They look like the opening credits to a TV show, and I, I dig it. Like, it, this is exactly my vibe, like, this this neon, this, this synthy music. And I was just like, th- through this scene, I was like, oh my god, this is going to be, like, one of my favourite films ever. And then I... I I like maybe a handful of moments the rest of the way. But yeah, a, a beast of an opening scene. Oh yeah, it's, And I it's, wish the driver drove more in Drive. I, th- I think that is the, the weakness of Refn not giving a shit about <laughs> the actual mechanics of it. He's far more interested in like the interiority and the, the conflicted violence at the heart of this man. I like um, that he was obsessed with this guy having two personalities when he in fact has none. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> Alright. Um, I do want to say, how weird is it that Oscar Isaac has a with credit? I know, I know. Well, I mean, he's in it for like seven minutes. So. But like, what had Oscar Isaac done at this point to deserve that with credit? Like, he was uh, in Robin Hood like the year before. I think, like, there's a big thing about like, how he only signed on on the condition he could like change the character, so maybe it was sort of a like, an additional, like, trying to massage his ego type thing. I, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's just it's just one of those things where you would imagine that three-time Emmy winner Brian Cranston at this point <laughs> would, like... Well, this is movies be able now, to get... kid. You're welcome. <laughs> but that's the thing, is so much of this cast, so, like, we get introduced to, like, who's going to be in this movie, and a lot of it is people who are laying low or kind of past their prime or subverting kind Going of expectations. Type. Yeah, because yeah, it's like it, it's Gosling, who's obviously a long way away from the Notebook at this point. Mm. Carrie Mulligan, fresh off an Oscar nomination. Oscar Isaac, who I feel like he's just starting to crest his Hollywood rise. Mm-hmm. I certainly tr- didn't know who he was when I first saw this, and then I was yeah. like, oh, of course he's he, he's standard. Yeah, and then the trio of TV actors in Christina Hendricks, Ron Perlman, and Brian Cranston, all of whom were on like successful, acclaimed cable dramas at this point. Mm-hmm. And then Albert Brooks, who yeah. <laughs> is obviously subverting type and should have had an Oscar nomination. He's really good in this. He 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 delivers one of my favourite moments outside of the opening scene. Um, and yeah, he he is shockingly good at this. But yeah, and that now the movie kind of settles into like the first half almost feels kind of rom commy with like an emotionally stunted lead. <laughs> so it's like you have a lot of scenes with the driver with Shannon and their day job of being a stunt driver. Like, I like that you kind of card cut from these credits of him be doing these crimes to him in a police outfit. And you're like, is he a police officer? Is that how he's got access to, <laughs> to all of this stuff? And then it's like, Oh no, he's a stunt driver. And he, he's just the guy who they get to do like the obscene, obscene stunts. And mm-hmm. his, his boss is Shannon who works at like a little mechanic shop. 
and it's just like I just like this kind of like general vibe to this whole part of it, where it's like he's just got this nice nondescript life that he also happens to <laughs> like do be a getaway driver at night. Yeah, and like you know, we'll learn that Shannon is like a. He has ideas above his station. He has a history of this, like, organized crime. Like, he has presumably given the driver his contacts and everything. Um, but he's a nice, well-meaning man. And, you know, Cranston is Cranston. I feel there's there's nothing more that needs to be said. He is always exceptional. Um, and even, like, this character of Shannon has so few real meaty scenes, but he does so much with it. Yeah, I think, I think that Brian Cranston said that he saw what Gosling was doing with the character and they made the conscious choice to basically ad-lib a lot of dialogue mm. so that, like, Shannon becomes more remote enough to kind of balance between the two of them. Yeah. And you definitely get that feeling like any scene that they're in together, Shannon is driving the conversation. Yeah, he's just a little chatterbox while the driver barely even speaks, like, <laughs> remaining silent while Shannon's like, you don't have to do the stunt, and, and like, you know, you can just say no, and oh, I'll get you more money, and all this, and, just, and, just, and then afterwards <laughs> when he's like, you okay, kid? And he just puts his thumb up, and it's just like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so Shannon, as you said, has got ideas about his station. What he wants to do is he's found this kid, as he refers to the driver, mm-hmm. um, and he's got, like, ideas that he can run... Like, what kind of racing is it that they want him to do? Boxcar, I assume. Like, sort of yeah. like NASCAR, but not in a circle. Or maybe NASCAR, <laughs> but... <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So, so he goes to his Jewish mobster contacts, Bernie Rose and Nino, to try and get the money to kind of afford a boxcar. Yeah, because, and it's like, they want 400 grand and they get 300 or whatever. And like, they, they need that buy-in and it's like, this. Like, I, I do like this romanticized idea of like going legit as it were yeah and i also like like just the the amount of work that first scene does into showing you how good a driver he is like it's not even the same kind of driving he'd be doing mm. in boxcar but you kind of have this like oh yeah no this guy would be great with it like you can understand why shannon is so invested in the idea of this um and this kid is his meal ticket yeah i do also like the like part of the reason why Ron Perlman decided to sign up to this movie is he liked the idea of Jewish mobster working for the Italian mob, yeah, kind of kind of idea. And obviously, like it's not something that's very present in the movie, but you do get like that moment where he says that he's always been looked down to, and how they refer to him as like various Jewish slurs when he meets. They pinch the... my. Che- I'm 59 years old. They pinch my cheeks. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not again like so much of this is shorthand or just yeah. kind of like thrown away stuff it, like we never see any members of the east coast mob in this movie it's just these two <laughs> jewish people owning a pizzeria and <laughs> running organized crime out of it yeah and i i like the eventual reveal that like nino knows shannon because he like <laughs> his men broke his pelvis and that's why he has that like sort of shambly walk that he does and like this this idea that they are still you know, acquainted, and and they're like, oh, it's just business, nothing personal, and and, and all of that stuff. Yeah, I like that dynamic between the three of them. Yeah, uh, but the other half of this kind of like more relaxed kind of like, as I said, like rom comy open to this movie is. He has a meet rela- cute. <laughs> he has a meet cute with Carrie Mulligan, who is I really like Carrie Mulligan in this movie. I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't know what it is. I just think. Again, it's the vibiness of it to it. I understand there is very little to her character. She is just... Just uh... incredibly sad. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, 
I mean, look at the situation. Right, she's a single mother, husband in prison, starts dating this man, husband gets out, ruins new relationship, husband killed, new boyfriend, <laughs> massive murderer man, new boyfriend then leaves. She goes to him anyway because she's that fucking broken and he's gone. And like, what a poor lady this is. <laughs> but I just think, I think Carrie Mulligan, I, I loved Carrie Mulligan ever since I saw her episode of Doctor Who. I have no beef with Carrie Mulligan. She's a great actress. I'm just saying this character is, is like many of them, paper thin. <laughs> yes. But again, I think the whole point of the characters being paper thin is to kind of put this archetypal story. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like, he has this meet cue, and a lot of this early section of the movie is him, like, she walks past him in the hallways, and the movie barely acknowledges her in the opening credits, and, like, their their big meet cue is obviously, like, at the supermarket, where like, he purposely avoids her, and then walks outside with his shopping, and then kind of wanders off, and you're like, oh, has he seen her in the parking lot, and her car's broken down, and... Like it's it's like him. He doesn't want to have a connection to people, but he's, and this is this is where the movie kind of you can read a more problematic view on it, where he gets very white knighty mm-hmm. around her, and like his whole thing is like I don't want to talk to her because I'm emotionally stunted and my only outlet is driving, listening to pop music, but he can't resist going to help the pretty lady. Yes, I mean I guess the generous reading is he doesn't want to bother her. And, like, you know, he just keeps to himself or whatever. But then, like, oh, someone needs help. I will help them. Um, Because, I mean, you know, he does help Standard, but then he arguably helps Standard to help Irene and and the kid. Yeah, the whole thing is these people, like, their husband has got involved in something which might end up killing them, and I want to make sure that they don't get killed. Um, I do enjoy... So, obviously, like, Shannon owns the the mechanic centre where the driver recommends that Irene takes her car to, and then Shannon just plays, like, matchmaker. <laughs> I la- <laughs> like, yeah, I do like him giving him shit. He's like, oh, you know each other? Because, like, it, the, the very fact he's talking and smiling is enough to be like, oh, look at you! <laughs> yeah, and just and the whole thing of, like, describing how he hired him and, like, how he gives him, like, half pay, which is, I uh, hopefully, a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he makes it up with the, uh, the crime jobs he does. <laughs> Maybe he does. But then, like, he very blatantly makes it so that the driver has to take Irene home and he's just like, oh no, the car's completely fucked. I'm going to have to work on it for like five days. Guess you're going to have to drive her home then. Mm. And the (laughs) smile that Gosling gives at the realisation of what Shannon is doing, he is, again, like, Gosling is so obviously a fucking movie star and he keeps on not wanting to be one. But it's moments like this where even in this movie that is so drenched in violence and things that like a mainstream audience want to do, like right down to the fact that it got a C minus cinema score, which is not good. Mm. Like Gosling just cannot resist being like Gosling is so hot in this movie. <laughs> I I can't decide if it's like spot on or kind of offensive that like this dude would be such a fucking pussy magnet because he's vaguely nice and doesn't say anything. <laughs> like, I guess that kind of tracks, but also, hey. <laughs> like, But yeah, that's the whole thing. Is like it, I think it's one of my favourite things about this movie is Gosling is so magnetic that like this guy, it just kind of elevates what this movie is trying to do with this guy. Yeah, I... <laughs> 
I just, I'm like, okay, I get it. You want to jump his bones, but like, are you going to sit on the TV talking to this dude? Uh, sit on the TV, sit on the couch watching TV talking to this dude for years? No, and I guess that's the point, is he can't have that life, and that's what they're going for with the, the sort of ending conversation they have. But like, yeah, just... <laughs> He's just fucking mute. And she's yeah. like, oh my god. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, and uh, Refn has said that it's very much a fairy tale, and so you have this, like, white knight coming to save the princess mm. with the obvious wrinkle of, like, she has a husband and a child. Love at first sight, you know, all of this. Yeah, yeah but the whole thing is so chaste. Mm. Like, for a movie for a movie that is so violent, at, like, there isn't <laughs> so a lot of, there isn't a lot of sex. Apart from, like, the one scene... At the strip club, just gratuitous tits <laughs> everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> like it's it's an incredibly chaste movie. Mm. I like that so of much of their relationship is based around him being nice to the kid as well. Mm. Um, like that's that's a nice touch. Like he doesn't have an ulterior motive. He's just a nice guy, and he actually genuinely bonds with the child and everything. And he's not he's not using the kid to get to Irene, he just genuinely is like, oh, hey, kid. And, like, you know, taking them on that nice scenic drive down the... Like, what do you even call those? The, the Los Angeles Canal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, but, like, uh, and, like, and, and it, it sticks out in your memory, because the two things are, I don't think I've ever seen that collection of trees in <laughs> yeah. the Los Angeles Canal. It's, like, one of those things where, like, you see it in so many movies. Yeah. And then also, it's like, wait, there's trees and, like, a little lake in this thing that you can yeah. go visit, and... Obviously, this is the first time that a real hero plays. Yes. Great song. Great song. Um, you know, it, Raffin should just make music videos, man. Like, it, it's... Whenever there's, like, a dope song playing and he is montaging over it, it's great. It's very stylish. It's just everything else I have problems with. And and so, I, I, this is a surprisingly, like, long chunk of the movie. Mm. Like, everything that we've described now of just him hanging out, him setting up the boxcar, him chilling with Irene, is, like, 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah, I, I was doing this track, and, like, while I was doing my notes, I was like, we are 20 minutes in and two things have happened. Or we are 30 <laughs> minutes in and three things have happened. We are 40 minutes in and four things have happened. And then uh, more starts to happen. But like, it, Yeah, it's like like the, the start of everything going wrong is, is standard, played by Oscar Isaac, getting released from prison. And this is where, like, the plot and the, the heisty element of the movie starts to come in. And I, I like that, like, it comes on, like, their first proper date night, you know, like, she's gotten the babysitter, she's, you get the idea that she doesn't get to go out much, like, she's, she's like, doing her hair and everything, and then you hear the phone ringing, and you don't see her answer, but then she tells him in the car, and it's like, this, this dark cloud has now come and ruined this, like, little daydream that they were having together. Yeah, and it's here you start to get, like, he hasn't, had this kind of bristling anger or violence to him before now mm. and then so after he gets the news the standards back he has he, he like just nondescript he's in a diner minding his own business mm. and some guy spots him <laughs> some guy spots him from across the way and it's just like oh you're the guy that drove me and my brother a year ago we got another driver and we end up in prison my brother ended up dead and the driver's response to this is like, shut up now or I'm going to like feed you your teeth. Yeah, it's like, yeah, or I can kick your teeth down your throat or whatever. And yeah, like this idea that he doesn't take repeat clients or he certainly doesn't take them like in public places. Like, yeah, like he is a man of his very few rules. He has no interest in being pally pally with anyone. And like, yeah, maybe this is sort of a 
him venting his feelings about what's happening with Irene towards just some dipshit he doesn't care about. And that's the thing, I think it takes a while for the, the violence to start to show up in this movie. And, and then it, it, it compensates for how long it took to show up by being <laughs> very over the line. But like, I was watching this with my partner and like literally he says that line about the teeth and she's like, this has taken a real tone change. And it's like, yeah, like this movie, it takes a while to get to it from this point like it's mm. it, it, at the moment it's mostly dialogue and kind of gosling's energy throughout a lot of this after this but the violence does arrive and obviously does arrive very strongly <laughs> it does. Uh, but like i just even now there's just ways that they play scenes that are very interesting like they have the the welcome home party for standard mm-hmm. and irene is kind of like is she sad that Standard's back? I don't understand, like, she because she sits out in the hallway. I think she's happy that... I, I think she recognises that, like, all these people are there and love him, and, like, her child has his father back, and I think she... She's, and his sort of sincere pledge to, like, do better, I think she recognises all of that as what's something that should be a joyful moment, but then, yeah, she, she liked what was happening with the driver, I guess, and she recognises that, like this probably means the end of that because like they don't explicitly say it but the 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 inference is that they just called it off as soon as standard got out i mean they have their one kiss later on but like yeah it, it becomes much more like you know like he has his little passive aggressive oh you're 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 her friend like you've been helping out thank you and like i think it's almost a twist that standard isn't a dickhead you know like, yeah like standard <laughs> seems like quite nice guy he doesn't do that like instant standoff thing where he's like, yeah. like I don't think he's happy that his son has found this like other father figure in this guy or like mm. someone he can get along with, but he's not kind of all like standoffy in his face and kind of going like you're never going to talk to my son or my wife ever again. Yeah, you're like waiting for that to drop. Like what you assume he's being passive aggressive and maybe he is when he's like, oh yeah, thank you, and you're just sort of waiting for him for like when no one else is around to be like you stay the fuck away from my family and he never does. And then, like, he, you know, when he gets beaten up and the driver finds him there and everything, and, like, I like that he goes straight to the kid as well. But, like, you know, when he agrees to help him, he, like, invites him over for dinner and they all have this this dinner together and he's, like, thankful to him. And so I have to assume this is what Oscar Isaac changed about the character and I have to imagine it was originally written as that more archetypal, like... LA LA Latino banger kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I I do really like the story about how, you know, he introduced himself as Standard Gabrielle, and then she was like, where's the deluxe version? And I like that the driver doesn't look at Standard, doesn't laugh at any of his jokes, but when he hears Irene's joke back at him or whatever, he smiles towards her, like, it's like, you're smart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I think Oscar Isaac is very good in this role yeah. and there's a lot going on there and there is and, and it's I, I think it's, like, it's, I think it's nice like, obviously he's from guatemala or he's guatemalan american mm. but i feel like at this point in time he was being cast as a lot of like ethnically ambiguous <laughs> characters yes he is unfortunately white passing he he can conceivably play hispanic italian like egyptian South, yeah, egyptian yes <laughs> Yeah, which, you know, on, in some ways good for him, gives him more opportunities, but then also, like, you know, Hollywood. Anyone who's not white, all the fucking same. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I mean, like, this movie is obviously very white. Oscar Isaac is the only person of colour. I like that originally Irene was Irena, 
And then yes. they're like, well, you are one of the whitest women I've ever seen, so you are now Irene. <laughs> like, the idea that this movie was going to be very much adhering to kind of, like, possibly, like, mm-hmm. Latinx, like, stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> and I, then, and, yeah, and I, I assume that's what he did when he tink- when he agreed to come aboard and, and tinker with it. But yeah, I do, I do enjoy... So after Stan gets beaten up and you have this, like, great shot of... Gosling driving the car and just like staring these guys in the eye mm. as they're like walking away and he's like well something's happened and then he finds Standard beaten up he goes to the kid and then the scene in the house where like he's talking to Standard about like what's happened and how much money he owes for the protection he received in prison mm-hmm. and then he goes aside and the kid's just got this bullet and I think oh, that's stone cold man <laughs> just handing like, a kid a bullet yeah like that's the thing that kind of like feels like it makes him even more like bristled with anger is the idea that like they didn't leave the kid alone they like chased the kid down and were like take this you're gonna hold on hold on to this for us yeah Yeah. and but i again also like that standard isn't like i did something stupid it's kind of like him acknowledge him saying i turned them down and that like the amount is just increasing at random and everything and that like he is he is a victim here and like you know Prison is fucking rough. You do what you got to do to to get by, but yeah, this idea that the standard didn't get out and then immediately plan a job and it went wrong or anything like that, like, well, I mean, it does. That is what happens, but you know, but uh, it's not it's not through his own fault. Like he yeah. is, of course, pushed into this by the driver, going like, "I'm a getaway driver. I will do this for you," mm-hmm. and like you can tell something is like wrong with this setup because we meet Cook. <laughs> Who fucking who feel, hates him. <laughs> who fucking hates him. Who feels like one of, like, Jesse's shitty friends from Breaking Bad. <laughs> like, that kind of, like, low-level, yeah. <laughs> like, drug guy kind of thing. Mm. And he's just like, I will drive, I'll do all the normal stuff that I do, and then afterwards, Standards is out. They don't mm. give them any backup. They give them Blanche, played by Christina Hendricks, who... Mm-hmm. I don't even know what she's supposed to be. Is she supposed to be a sex worker, or just, like... I mean, you can infer what you will. Cook runs a strip club, like, yeah. And he was looking at porn stars to cast this role, so you know. Uh, I, but I do like the idea that Cook sees himself as equal to Bernie and Nino, but mm. very clearly he is not. <laughs> yeah. But then again, the driver pretty fucking stupid to threaten a mobster. I would assume. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's what I like is that so much of this is like he's doing the quote-unquote right thing, but he's just got no idea how to work. Yeah, he's too naive. Yeah. yeah. And, like, right down to Cook writing, like, fuck off on his hand. hand, (laughs) For how much he's going to get, like, you do not get paid anything for this, you are just stealing this money. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, now the violence happens. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so they do this, they rob a pawn shop, it's it's exactly like the opening scene where like, you know he opens the door for the first person, the second person is taking longer. There's this mysterious car there, and then Standard gets blasted with a shotgun while fleeing, and they just drive like hell. And I just I don't think any of the other driving scenes are anywhere near as impressive as that first one. Like it's fine, like you know him. Like... I think I think it's because like this one feels like a more traditional driving scene. Yeah. Um. I still like the general vibe of it. Like this is this is when Cliff Martinez's score is kind of backing up. It's not the the Euro pop soundtrack that a lot mm. of the rest of the movie has. I still think Martinez's score is absolutely fantastic, but 
Yeah. Yeah, like this this one does feel like this could be in any other movie and it's kind of more notable for like handbrake turns and driving bumper to bumper and I do like that he like pinpoint places that second car directly on like a little thing so it can't drive anymore. Like it's yeah. like shit. <laughs> Look at you go. Um, and then, uh, you know, he develops a third personality trait on, st- on top of being silent and vaguely nice. He hits women. Um, so that's great. To be, like, okay, don't hit he women, He hits her obviously. one time, I know. He, he hits her one time, and it's after she's done the very dumb thing of calling in her location. Yes. Um, <laughs> because, yeah. that's, that's the thing, is, like, it, it turns out that this entire thing has been a setup that none of them are aware about, all of them were supposed to die. Yes. Essentially. Like, they were... Uh, as we will find out later on the movie, they have stolen a million dollars from East Coast. <laughs> that it was supposed to be forty grand, and it's a million dollars. It was quite a reveal. Yeah, and they've so got this ludicrous amount of money they stole from East Coast mob on behalf of, as it will turn out, Nino. Mm-hmm. Which is how the movie kind of like starts to slowly unravel upon itself in terms of all the characters we met being involved in this thing. Yeah, and the idea was that like. Well, you know, that's why it's so protected, I guess. And then also that second car, Blanche was supposed... Like, they were supposed to, like, hit the driver and potentially Blanche was supposed to get away or maybe that's just something they told her because, you know, they fucking blow her head off in a second. Um, But yeah, they were going to steal it back off him, basically. Yeah, get Um, someone else to do it, get them away, follow them in the car. Yeah, because no. and then like the 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 news report is that Standard acted alone and nothing was stolen. It's like okay, what the fuck's going on? I like him saying, "Whose money do I have?" And, and that reveal that it's Nino as well. Like, and then yeah, hyper violence enters the film, and just we've just watched five quite violent movies uh, for kicky punchy men, and I feel the violence in this is more gratuitous than any of those five. <laughs> I think it's because it takes so long to come, and then obviously the and first... it's so over the top as well. <laughs> it, yeah, I no, I agree that this movie feels so much more violent than those others. I think it's because it's a heightened world, but it's a heightened world in a different way to the two raid movies. Mm. I think that thing. I think you're saying like it, it's very much a fairy tale. Like this feels very out of place with that, and like I guess that's the point, man. But like. Yeah, just people getting their heads blown open and what he will do in the elevator in a minute and stuff. Like, it's both, all think, just so far. <laughs> I think both of which had to be like shaved down and were originally like a lot worse. Like, um, we'll get to the elevator scene when we get to it, but like, you can tell they're kind of cutting around certain acts of violence. I think it obviously becomes this first act. Like, obviously, we've seen Oscar Isaac get shot, but it's very much like blood packs and squibs, not. Mm-hmm. Not nothing that you haven't seen in like a a standard and like movie and like when that. he's beaten up, you get to him after he's been beaten. Like you don't see him getting attacked. Like I, I like that, but but yeah. yeah, for this for this moment, you have Blanche's head is blown off through the window. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thanks for showing he, up, Christina. Yes, he then shoves the shower pole into the guy's chest, which obviously like lots of oh, fake blood. But then it cuts away before it shows the shotgun blast to like the guy coming in through the front door. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's just his it's face kind of, is covered in blood, and just yeah, this, it's, it, it's a horror movie at this point. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And the monster is the protagonist. Yeah, but yeah, so so we have this like very shocking moment of violence, and then the movie kind of slows down again as, um, as he tries to connect dots. <laughs> yeah, and you you have obviously he 
he goes to Shannon to get like the buckshot that he's got in his arm pulled out. Uh, and then Shannon's just like, well, where's the money? What about the money, kid? What about the money? And he's like, would you stop? <laughs> yeah. And Shannon makes the choice to, I, I'm friends with Bernie Rose. I'm going to go call Bernie and see yeah, what Ber- Bernie's he's... my friend. Corporations are your friends. <laughs> like, very naive of Shannon here. But, yeah. but I think I think that's the, that's the thing is like Shannon is uh, both Shannon and the driver are so out of their depth in how to deal with this yeah, and yeah. understanding the mentality behind the people that they're like inadvertently in the room with. Mm-hmm. And so both of them are just like, if I give them the money, this is over, right? <laughs> Ignoring the fact that like four people have already died yeah. in relation to this. Yeah. But, and that's the thing. And like, and like, that that private scene with Nino and Bernie will lay it out of of like this has to be cleaned up and like people have to answer for what happened and the driver has to go and all of this stuff and it's that's what the driver doesn't understand because you know he 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 goes to cook and like smashes his hand with a hammer and feeds him the bullet and then like gets told about Nino and and then says like yeah I'll, I apparently have your money I'd like to give it back and it's just like they're not just going to just take the money back. I do like Nino being like, you're not very good at this, are you? Because he's like, no one else knows I have it. I don't want anything. I don't have any partners. Yeah. Yeah. I have no leverage. Uh, But like, yeah, the private scene with with Nino and and Bernie is Mm. great. I think like, Brooks has been good before this, like the scene where he meets the driver and the driver like is just pulling his gloves off and like not wanting to shake his hand. Won't shake his hand. And I, I... I, I really like the shorthand in that scene because Bernie wants to shake the driver's hand. The driver won't do it. Shannon offers his hand. Bernie won't shake his. And it's like, you can take that in multiple ways of like, well, your kid didn't shake my hand, so I'm not shaking yours. Or like, Bernie doesn't respect Shannon because he sees the kid as the commodity. And I also like Shannon being like, what a- Whatever you do, don't say anything. It's like, you really don't need to worry about that, my dude. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like, and the only time that, like, the driver accepts it is when Bernie goes, like, my hands are dirty too, in Mm. response to, like, the fact he'd been driving this, like, boxcar around the arena. And all of the scenes with Albrecht before now are, like, obviously he's got, like, a sense of power to him in terms of, like, his relationship to Shannon especially. But he seems just like a nice guy. He's He's the nice mobster. He's the one you can trust. Nino's the dangerous one. Yeah, and it's it's just it's playing very much up to that like Albert Brooks stereotype of like just kind of like being a nice chummy guy mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And then this scene happens where he repeatedly stabs Cook in the neck mm-hmm. with a knife, stabs him in the eye with a fork, and then in the throat or the meat cleaver or, or a very sharp Cook's knife. Like crazy, crazy, crazy violent. And like yeah, I do like that that like Nino has come across as the like the tougher edge and Bernie's the reasonable one and then Bernie is the one that's like, well, we have to do this. And yeah, it's like, showing, the, like, they're all bad, man. <laughs> yeah, the silent conversation that the two of them have when, like, Nino goes, well, they're the only two people left that can, like, link us to them and then they just both look at Cook. <laughs> Who's oblivious. <laughs> he was just sat there eating pizza with, like, his broken arm from when the driver, like, broke his hand. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, like, and there's some... It's a shame that Carrie Mulligan doesn't get a lot to do. She gets to her. slap him incredibly hard. She does get to slap him incredibly hard. She gets that, like, scene where Benicio is, like, describing to the driver that, like, Mummy's talking to the police right now because Dad's been murdered. <laughs> yeah, and like, um, him offering her the money. Yeah, I don't have to go see these people. I'll go talk to them and presumably kill them if she accepts the money. And she is just 
flat out not interested. Yeah, like, what is it with you and death, man? <laughs> yeah, uh, and then... The elevator scene. <laughs> uh, the elevator scene is perfect. I hate it. <laughs> it distills what I don't like about the movie. Because you get this, think... this, like, hyper-slow-mo, soundtracked kiss scene... This, this like, stolen moment, and then cutting to him kicking someone in the head until they don't have a head anymore. And, like, I don't care what it's trying to say about, like, you know, he must do this horrible thing and she will never see him the same way again, so he must steal this brief moment of happiness. It's just... I hate it so much. Yeah, I'm the complete opposite. Like, from the moment that they get into the lift together with William Nino's guys and he spots the gun and then just the way he like the camera kind of zooms in pushes her away and then the lighting change in the lift mm-hmm. as like it's not even them blocking the light on that side of the elevator and pushing away no it's like just... this, it's like the scene in Booksmart where the lighting changes it's, yeah. it's, it's when films do this thing where they're like we're going to be a play for a moment mm. Um, which uh, you know, I in theory dig. I just I hate this juxtaposition so much. But then, yeah, just just the the score rising, the slow mo kiss, the the juxtaposition of like the violence and the chaste romance between the two of these people, like the way that the camera shifts, like you never see the violence happen from the same angle that they have the kiss from. It's all done from hmm. from separate angles. It's like, I can completely understand why you wouldn't like it because, and again, like I imagine this scene where like there's even more violence because that's originally what the idea was was yeah. that was that Refn got on the phone with Gaspar Noé and was just like, "Hey, you did a head kicking scene in Irreversible. <laughs> uh, how do I make this look realistic?" I guess and, I guess the idea would have been that it was more less looking up at the driver doing the kicking and more looking at his foot stomping. Yeah, that's because there's only like the one insert shot of the head being crushed. It's hideous. It's utterly hideous. Like, if the violence were less extreme, if all he did was just beat the shit out of this dude and, like, kill him in a, like, more tasteful way, as it were, I wouldn't object to it so hard. It's just that to follow that moment with just the one of the most violent things ever put to film, somehow. <laughs> like, I think, again, I think it is that juxtaposition of, like, the movie is so not violent for so long, and... I just... For me, this is creeping into the territory of, like hyper-violence in place of substance, you know, like, trying to make a point, and, but it's more just pointing at violence, you know, like... like... Again, and, and it's why my preferred read of the movie is that, like, when a real hero kicks in at the end, it's it's ironic. Like, the movie is playing with these archetypes of him being the white knight, being the hero of a fairy tale, mm. and it's just like, but he's still this morally compromised guy who's just incredibly angry, prone to these fits of violence. But then I um, wish she didn't go to him. You know, like, I wish... Because, you know, she gets out of the lift and he just looks at her and, and the lift closes and, like, it's like... That's her That's her out of the movie. Yeah, and, like, she's seen him for what... In his opinion, he really is or whatever. Like, that. that's poignant. But then to then have her go back to him, just, I think it kicks the legs out from under her character and robs it of that potential reading of, like, no, actually, he's bad. But... I mean, I, I, yeah, I can see that. And I, I, I do think that... It is complicated, and obviously, like, you can put that heroic reading on the fact that he gets away, he doesn't go back for her either. Yeah. Like, he's the hero because he's not going to subject her to and this he leaves, life. And he leaves the money, and he, he just drives away, and yeah. Like, yeah. But I, I do think they're good, and I just, like, I like that their their last full conversation, that one at the diner, is, is kind of still full of, like, that kind of bristling rage that he has. Because yeah. that, that is the last time they have, like, a proper conversation, isn't it? 
Uh, I mean, if you don't count her just slapping him when he suggests, yeah, kind of, it that feels like like uh, uh, it, like not a full stop because obviously she does knock on the door again afterwards. But like that feels like a different kind of thing. Like the last time that they are engaging each other yeah. as like a semi relationship. Yeah, is that her place of work? Yeah. yeah, and and now the movie kind of like I think I've heard them say that this is when it becomes a superhero movie, <laughs> reckon, which I, that sounds gross to me. Is the yeah. idea that like describing what he does in the in the elevator as a superhero moment, like, and they don't even have the ability to go like, oh, we're riffing on Winter Soldier because that movie is is three years away at this point yeah. in terms of actual violence. But yeah, now it becomes like this slasher movie right down to him. Stalking Nino down the fucking beach in a fucking horror movie mask. Yeah, like he goes, he's covered in blood. He goes to the set of the movie, and no one bats an eyelid that he's covered in blood because it's presumably a movie set. Steals the mask of the lead actor that he wore in the stunt earlier, and then just sits outside the pizza restaurant watching. When he like, like walks up to the window, and it's just like you can see him through that one pane that isn't frosted, and he's just standing there. It's like if any of them can see you, they are calling the well, they're going to shoot you. But in theory, they're calling the cops. I do love this little moment of like Ron Perlman laughing at like the funniest joke in the world, and <laughs> the the woman just kind of like nonplussed, staring yes. at him as he's doubled over in laughter. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, uh, everyone leaves. The driver chases down the car. He, he clips them the first time and then drives off. And then, as they're like walking around in the fog of the of the Los Angeles beach at night, as they're about to go, he then drives them off a cliff. Yes, and then just standing up above, like this is very evocative of Halloween, of like mm-hmm. seeing uh, Michael Myers like in the distance and, and often up above and everything and, it, and it's why I rather than think of it as like a slasher movie like he isn't a hero he becomes the villain of his own yeah that like, that's how you frame movie monsters like you put them above because victims are, are below looking up and everything they are innocent or whatever but yeah and then just <laughs> the Nino was like hmm the sea that seems like a good place <laughs> to escape and then the tide just brings him back to it <laughs> yeah and I'd love the way that the lighthouse kind of like illuminates this scene yeah, where the like every is a nice creepy touch yeah like every three or four seconds you get something like it's still clear like they've still lit it or changed like the contrast notes you can still see everything yeah. but when that like just neon lighthouse light flies across the screen and just gives it this creepy vibe as he drowns Nino in the ocean. Um, <laughs> apparently, Ron Perlman was hurt by the wave and, like, fucked up his knee. Oh, shit. Yeah, in the middle of filming this. I can't, I don't, I'm like, obviously, like, he's on, he's on Sons of Anarchy at this point, which is, uh, I think that also, like, exacerbated, like, certain things about him as well in terms of, like, injuries, so... Mm. Ron Perlman is, is not getting any younger, folks. Shout out to Ron Perlman, still fighting the good fight, like, just taking down right-wing people left and right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and... From here, we get the, like, Shannon has been told to escape because Shannon is the person that very misguidedly called Bernie and kind of went like, oh, he's got a girl, which is how... How do they know where I live, Shannon? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and the driver's still too nice. He's like, get away, pack a bag, run away. Mm. There's, like, this is is done. I'm going to finish it as much as I can. This this is my second favourite scene in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, like... The uh, Shannon hobbling with his bag and then seeing Bernie, and he's just like, you know, oh, you, you going somewhere? He's like, 
I, I guess I am. <laughs> and like, you know, this awkward moment where Shannon thinks, oh, maybe I can talk my way out of it. And then him just, you know, the handshake and then slitting his wrist and be like, no, it's done. It's over. Yeah, no pain. It's just, yeah. you're just going to bleed just, out now. I just really fucking love that as a, as a character moment. And like, you know, after... Obviously, he's done his hyper-violence to Cook, but, like, that this guy... That Shannon went down hoping to the last that Bernie was his friend, and then Bernie just does that to him. And and after, like, looking up at the car and be like, man, I wanted my name on a car, that would have been great. But we can't do that anymore, and you must die. Yeah. Um, and just, again, like, this is this is Albert Brooks' like, Oscar scene. Like, he should have mm. been nominated for this. Yeah. Best supporting actor of the Oscars this year were... Christopher Plummer for Beginners, which he wins, Kenneth Branagh for My Week with Marilyn, Jonah Hill for Moneyball, Nick Nolte for Warrior, and Max von Sydow for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Nick Nolte ain't that good in Warrior, sorry. What a, what a <laughs> bad line. <laughs> like, Max von Sydow for Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, a movie which really shouldn't have been nominated for anything. Mm. Um, God, that's made me sad that mm. Albert Brooks couldn't make that five. I'm guessing it all comes from like how stuffy and traditional the Oscars are, that they're not going to give Albert Brooks playing against type in this like hyper-violent, mm. like, Euro-trash-infused movie. Yeah. Get back to your screwball comedies, Albert Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to The Simpsons. Yeah, exactly. Go back to one of the highest-grossing animated movies of all time. Yes. But yeah, uh, and now it kind of all comes down to this final confrontation between Bernie and the driver. Like... We do get this excellent scene of like just how nonchalantly Bernie is cleaning the razor in his mm. house. That feels uh, so. That feels very European movie, like him like putting his antique razor back in its its collection, like it's no big deal. Right? Yeah, um, I like the like very brief reference to the scorpion and the frog fairy tale, or whatever. Or, or isn't it like not even a real thing and it's become like a fake fairy tale or something? I feel I'm like not sure. I, haven't done, I haven't done research into it. And obviously, okay. like, he has the scorpion on his jacket, and the yes. entire point of the movie is like he is the scorpion. Yes. And he drowned. And he's like, yeah, Nino didn't make it. <laughs> Which it, it, I feel like him being the scorpion is like a weird read, though. Mm hmm. Because like, he should be the frog that's too trusting. <laughs> yeah, like, it, just in terms of the fact that, like, they make it seem like he, he bites back at everyone he works with, but he seems like he's just a nice guy who's willing to work with you as long as you don't fuck with him. What and it's if, not... what if the nice guy in him that was activated by Irene and Benicio is the frog, and his dark nature is the scorpion, and he needs the scorpion to help him get to the other side, but then the scorpion stings him in the end? Yeah, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try and talk you into like coming up with like things that make you maybe like the movie more. <laughs> I don't like that. I just I'm trying to do some help. I'm trying to help him. Like he isn't gonna tell me a story, so I'll fill it in for him. Yeah, uh, we get one final moment of dramatic irony when hmm. the driver goes back to the, the little mechanic shop and finds Shannon's corpse, and he's died right next to where the money is. The money was in the boot of the the, the little box car the entire time. Yeah. Because obviously that's the only place you think that's safe to safe to put it. Yeah, yeah. Their, their dream <laughs> and, and all their money invested in and literally inside of this car. Yeah, and so he makes the organization to to meet Bernie at a little Chinese restaurant. Which this movie's got a weird obsession with Chinese movie, right down to using slurs to refer to it. Yeah, so why you were why are you eating c word food in a. Uh... In my restaurant, and then what's uh, what's a Jew doing owning a pizzeria anyway? 
So, um, okay. Yeah. And then <laughs> we'll they leave have that this, alone. Yeah, they have this like conversation where Bernie kind of lays it out to them and says, "Like the girl can go, give me the money." You can get away even if you want to, but you're going to have to look over your shoulder for the rest of your life and you can never come back here. Yeah. Is, well, is how he's kind of laying out. Like, you are going to die at some point. I'll give you a head start, but you're dead, basically. <laughs> but then he tries to kill him anyway, and they just both stab each other in a, in a oddly anticlimactic sort of final confrontation. Um, given how stylized all the other deaths have been, them just uglily stabbing at each other. It's kind of but the like, thing is, oh, no. I, I, I like the kind of inevitability of it all. Like, I, I understand why it comes off as feeling, but it feels like all this violence that's been very prettily shot in all the rest of it, it feels like at the end it's just this ugly thing where it's just two guys lamely stabbing at each other in a parking lot is what it all comes back down yeah, to. And you, and you don't even see it all properly. Like, a lot of it's in shadow and, like, obscured shots and everything. And they even try and sell you on the idea that the driver's dead as he sits there not blinking in the car. Which I assume is a reference to when he says you blinked to Benicio earlier, but who yeah, knows? It, it's this it's an interesting like climax to the movie because you could almost read it as this like dream state where like so obviously like the driver is sat in the car and you think he's dead and then he like just kind of like perks up puts the keys in the ignition and drives off. Mm-hmm. Leaves leaving, the money. <laughs> leaves the money, leaves the corpse of, of Bernie behind. And you have a real hero playing over it, and like they're calling him like a real human being, and he's just this man who has like, survived being stabbed in the gut mm. and is this just emotional wreck of a person. And it's why my reading on the use of the song is like highly ironic that sure. he, like, he is not human. He's not like he is this weird... He got a he got a taste of being a human, and I, I do like him calling Irene and, and saying that like th- these last the time I spent with you and Benicio is like the best time of my life, and like this idea that he's like such a stunted person, and like I like that when they're having that party earlier on this like really ruckus party, you see inside his apartment, and he's just sitting there with like a desk lamp tinkering with car shit in this like stripped down apartment as like of course he lives in one of these yeah um but yeah that like he he was activated briefly by her and then like he couldn't have it and off he goes like in theory i like that but yeah um that's the end of the movie a movie which is incredibly vibey and if you don't like the tone or vibe of it then it probably isn't gonna work 100 yeah. percent for you yeah there's also like a lot of throughout the editing choices are... There's a lot of crossfade transition type stuff, and it's like not the kind of thing you typically see in movies of this size. Um, or at all, really. It seems a lot more TV-ish. And like this honestly feels like a very long episode of a TV show, or like or like a mini-series edited together or something. Um, and I think, that, I, I could, I think that's I the European s- influence of it. But Yeah, I could see it being like a pilot for something almost, where it's just like <laughs> it's setting up this like almost incredible Hulk indebted thing where it's just Ryan Gosling bumming it from town to town being a getaway driver for you, people. You don't want to be indebted to the Incredible Hulk. Oh, you mean the character, not, not I mean, not I mean the, the TV show. Oh, the TV show. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, as I said, like I, I don't hate it. Like Obviously, I've offered a lot of criticism here. I'm more just trying to say why I don't like love it. And, like, there's, I, I, just... I think it's just an emotion... Like, it's, a, it's an instinctual connection it's it's one of those things that it's either just going to grab you immediately purely based on vibe and not let go or like for me it was much more like oh this is cool and then just like but there's not much to it that's the thing is i think however much there is is how much you bring to it yourself and if you want to sit and think about things and add that depth to it it can do that Hmm. 
I think it's like it's interesting that this premiered at Cannes, and like the other two movies that are there are obviously Tree of Life and Melancholia, which you can say are like the birth and death of the universe, um, <laughs> or like of the world in some points. And Drive was a popular movie at Cannes, and it almost feels like people kind of going like rebelling against these kind of two very much more cosmically minded movies and settling in for the like the not even character drama, just this brutalist very vibey neon neon synth wave soaked revenge thriller everyone's sad it's a vibe <laughs> yeah and i don't think like again like this is i always see this as like this kind of the birth of the second half of of gosling's career and yeah no i, I yeah i i can see that that like he's a face you knew he was in like an incredibly big movie and then like he carves out this niche as this dude that's like, oh, he's a contemplative actor who does these sort of quieter, smaller projects, yeah. but then can flex and do something huge. Like, he has, he has like, Blue Valentine the year before, but I feel like Blue Valentine is still him fighting against being a movie star, because Blue Valentine's got that whole thing where, like, after the time jump, he's got the thinning hairline, and he's got a bit of a gut, and he's got the awful moustache, whereas Drive is very much like, he is a movie star... <laughs> who is slumming it almost in this, like, very dirty, grimy movie. Curse my good looks! Why will no one take me seriously as an actor? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that's Drive. I, I, We probably won't touch on Refn again at all over this. I, I, it it feels like such a, like, for me, lightning in a bottle kind of moment, where, like, this movie was made by a creative team that... Yeah haven't really followed up with anything as interesting since. And I feel like, he, yeah, he is coasting off this credit. Like, every movie he makes is from the director of Drive, you know, and, like, obviously he's trying to, in many ways, I mean, I haven't seen it, but Only God Forgives looks like him trying to just make it again, and then Neon Demon is a slightly different thing, but, like, yeah, I, I feel like he's, it's kind of like he is immortal for Drive, but nothing else he does is anywhere near as theoretically interesting i think he's like part of a tv show he, cre he created a tv show I haven't he did create that. a tv show with miles teller which like <laughs> sold <laughs> that's the thing is it's miles teller all the episodes are out there oh i should tell you who the other person who's in it is as well go on uh, hideo kojima plays an assassin fuck <laughs> now i have to see it because uh yeah he put refn in death stranding his weird decision to just take his famous hollywood friends as character models and then have different people voice act them. His weird fucking apocalypse game. Do you want to know the weirdest thing about this movie, to all, uh, this TV show, To All To Die Young? What? So not only is Master the Lead, they took it to, like, film festivals, but they took, like, episode three and four. Right. So they aired it as, like, a film where they just aired episode three and four of the TV show, and then were just like, yeah, this is what we're submitting to you guys. Everyone's like... What the fuck? We're just coming in at like hour three and four of this thing. Twin Peaks: The Return is a movie. <laughs> I mean, that is very much like he wrote and directed every episode with Ed Brubaker as well. Is the oh, wow. on. Jesus! What a weird thing that has distracted me entirely from the podcast we're doing. But yeah, so so that is something that Matt's going to watch by the time we podcast next, and just say he hates everything about it. <laughs> I mean, quite possibly. But yes, when we podcast next, I will be back in the host chair because we. I submit to you Moneyball, uh, one of my choices. Uh, I'll be interested to watch that for next week. Matthew. Yes. Will there be more Vibe Neon Synthway soaked movies in our future? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, <laughs> I hope there will be movies with with real characters and and and, and plots and and stuff like that. But there will certainly be hyper stylized music videos because Zack Snyder continues to be gamefully employed by everyone. That's the meanest Drive. thing I could say about Drive. Isn't it? <laughs> Drive is good. Okay. Bye. Bye. I didn't know